Welcome to the sermons and teachings from the Catalyst Fellowship with Ipai Michael. We hope the message you're about to listen to will edify you and cause you to experience exponential growth. And now, the message. Open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 15. This is the sixth part of our teaching series, Look at the book. Look at the book. And I've been emphasizing this particular text to you since we started this series. The Bible says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says, be diligent to show yourself approved to God, a worker, the King James Version says, a workman, a laborer, that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we've read this text a lot, and we've said that the word, be diligent there, means to do everything in your power. In the King James Version, it says, study. Study to show yourself approved. The word study is the Greek word spudazo, S-P-O-U-D-A-Z-O, and it means to be diligent, to give all diligence, to give all diligence, to do everything in your power. It means to study and more. It means to do everything you can do. It means to give everything you can. Study. Be diligent to show yourself approved unto God. And this is the root text for this teaching series and for the concept generally called hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the science of how to interpret the Bible rightly. How to rightly divide the word of truth. That is hermeneutics. And this text is at the root of hermeneutics. It says, be diligent to show yourself approved unto God. Meaning that there is a standard in God. Amen. And we have to give all diligence to meet that standard. Amen. It's a study to show yourself approved unto God. It says a workman. The word, the word workman there means a laborer. So when we see you speak about scriptures, let us discern your labor in the word. Let us know that you are a workman. Amen. Let's know that you are a workman. We have to discern that you are a workman. It says a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If there is a right way to divide the word of truth, it means there is a wrong way to divide the word of truth. Amen. A good workman is one who follows right approach to rightly divide the word of truth. So labor, give all diligence, do all you can to show yourself approved. Every believer ought to be a workman. I've told you before that every believer is in one, not every believer, but everyone who reads the Bible is in one way an interpreter. Amen. The only question is, would you be a good one? Would you be a good interpreter? Would you be a good laborer? It says rightly dividing, meaning cutting straight the word of truth. And so there's a right way to divide the word of truth. And it will take labor. It will take effort. It will take time. It will take everything you have. 
and you can give. It says a workman that needed not to be ashamed. A workman faithfully performing his duty so that when he looks over what he's done, he can be satisfied that he has done right. Amen. So take all diligence. Take all diligence. Study. Give everything you have. The Apostle Paul says that in doing this, you will save yourself and those who hear you. Amen. So do the right thing. Do your due diligence. You know, something I used to say many months ago. I used to say the Bible is so simple, you need help to misunderstand it. The problem is, some people have been poor workmen. Amen. They've been lazy workmen. They've not taken their time to study and they've gone ahead to teach people the result of their poor study. You have to be different. You have to be a laborer. It's different if, if you've even labored and maybe you just got it right genuinely. Some people are just lazy. They are not studious. They are not workmen. Every member of the Catholic community is expected to be a workman in the world. Amen. And not just a workman, you must be a workman. Amen. You must be a person of scriptures. You must be known for scriptures. You must be known for right interpretation of scriptures. You must be known as one who understands the scriptures and is skilled in the way of the word. Because you give it diligence. Hallelujah. You give it what? Diligence. And this is what the believer is going to have to do to, to, to overcome the existing barriers in Bible interpretation. We started last week talking about barriers to Bible interpretation. And we said because the Bible was written by men, inspired by God, it means that it is communicated in a language. And for the fact that it is communicated in the language, it is subject to the principles that guide language. Amen. And we said that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament in Greek, meaning we don't have the exact words in terms of the, 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 the language at which the Bible was written. Amen. The Bible has been translated. Jesus did not speak English. Neither did, that, did his disciples speak English. Meaning that the Bible has been translated. And so there are several barriers. We've also gone to study the nature of the Bible and we've seen that God wouldn't have the Bible to be complicated to us. That every barrier to biblical interpretation is man-made. Amen. It's not from God. It's from man. It's not from God. And so a good workman is going to put in the labor to be able to overcome this barrier. God wants us to understand him. The ministry of Jesus is the ministry of clarity. Now, I urge you, if you haven't listened to the previous parts of the series, as soon as it comes out, you should go for it, get it, spend your time on it, and listen to it because it builds up to this point we're in today. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, Knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. By the Holy Ghost. This is how we got scriptures. Men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This can be compared to a man on a ship 
or, or to a ship rather or on, on the ocean and is being moved by the wind. That's what it means for men to write moved by the Holy Ghost, meaning that it will be communicated in the mind and through the mouth of the man, even though it is inspired by the Holy Ghost, meaning that the limitations in communication of the man would be the same limitations that are exhibited in the writing, even though the intent of what is being written is inspired by the Holy Ghost. Amen. And so it means that the men would write using things like figures of speech and things that can be understood by the audience they are writing to. Are you getting what I'm saying? Because what they have to communicate to the people is a message. They have a message to communicate. And so the Bible, even though it's a divine book, is a literary material. Did you hear that? The Bible, even though it's a divine book, is what? A literary material. Meaning subject as well to the rules. Of literature. Amen. And so today we're going to continue to look at other possible barriers. Now this doesn't also promise to be an exhaustive list, but this gives you a hint of some of the barriers that are in Bible interpretation that you must look to overcome if you want to truly understand the Bible. Remember, God's idea is not for the Bible to be hard to understand. The barriers come from the human, they are man-made, like I said. So last week we spoke about, last time we met, we spoke about two barriers. What was the first one? The language barrier. We spoke about the language barrier. What was the second barrier we spoke about last week? Figures of speech. Today we're going to go to the next one. And the next barrier that we will be discussing today is cultural barrier or historical barrier. Cultural barrier or historical barrier. Now, what does cultural barrier refer to? Cultural barriers refer to issues that arise as a result of the historical distance from the writing to the reception. In plain sense, it means these are barriers in Bible interpretation that arise from difference in the culture. The historical difference is the time it was written, the difference between the culture in the time it was written and the time it was received. Amen. Not just the time it was received, but even our day when we are writing. That is cultural barrier. It has to do with the cultural differences between the there and then and the here and now. Did you, did you get that? The cultural difference between what? The there and then and the here and now. Remember what we said, that, there, that, that the Bible was written for us and not to us. Did you get that? So there were specific people who wrote and there were specific people who they were writing to. And so the job of the interpreter today is to understand the author's intention and the recipient to be able to understand what was going on. And so, when you begin to study this, you begin to see that if the author wrote in a particular cultural time, it means that the things he wrote might be bound by that culture because he might use the culture in his teaching. Amen. To explain to the people. And so that's why you have to pay attention to the cultural barrier as well. What is culture? Culture is the way of life of a people. Culture is what? The way of life of a people. And so the way of life of the author and the way of life of the recipient can affect their writings. And there's already a historical distance between us and them. Because many of the New Testament was written 
you know, closer to the first century and times around that. And we are now in what? In the 21st century, right? So there, there are many years, many centuries have passed between then and now. There are differences in cultures that can affect the way we understand their writing. And that is why the cultural barrier must be looked into. We have to understand the culture of the people then for many of the things that they said to make sense to us unless we will misinterpret the scripture. Now today is going to be filled with examples. So just, you know, pay attention. Alright, so one example would be when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about covering their hair. Now if you don't consider the audience, you would think that he's instructing women everywhere to cover their heads. However, consider the audience. What did I say? Consider the audience. Consider the culture. Consider the historical background of the people. Let's go to the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read NKJV. Verse 1 says, Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Verse 2. It says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. I'm going to read it in the King James Version. It says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I have delivered them to you. So first of all, the Apostle Paul is telling them that they should keep the ordinances. What, what, what are ordinances? The word ordinance there is the Greek word paradosis. P-A-R-A-D-O-S-I-S. And what paradosis means is tradition that same word was used in first corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23 when the bible says for i received from the lord that which i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the same night which he was betrayed took bread so he was talking about something he received and he delivered first corinthians 15 3 for i delivered to you first of all that also which i received that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Do you see that? He's talking about delivering something that he received. Second Thessalonians 2.15 It says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So basically, paradosis refers to a set of instructions. Did you get that? Paradosis refers to what? A set of instructions. Which means that you must understand that the Apostle Paul was instructing the Corinthian church. Amen. He was giving them a set of instructions. Are you following? It says, remember me in all things and keep the instructions as I deliver them to you. Now, what are those instructions? In verse 3, it says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is what? God. Verse 4 it says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Let me ask you a question. Is the Apostle Paul instructing them doctrinally? 
Or what is the context of these instructions? Look at it closely. It's possible that you can't tell. I, I mean, it's possible. It might be hard to tell. But when we look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of, the, of Christ is God. The first set of things he says gives us the context of this instruction. What is the context from what he just heard? Marriage. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Marriage. Because marriage is the only context where the Bible tells a woman to submit to a man. Are you getting what I'm saying? That's the only context where God tells a woman to submit to a man. Are you getting this? So he says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Are you seeing that? Now, let's go to verse 6. It says, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. Let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Are you seeing this? He's taking a reference to Genesis. Man is not from woman. Woman is from man. He says, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her, on her head. Question, why should she have a symbol of authority on her head in this context? Because she submitted to a man to show that the head of the woman is the man. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Are you following? He says, because of the angel, he says, nevertheless, neither is man independent of the woman or independent of the man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. He says, judge among yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory for her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Now look at his conclusion in verse 16. It says, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such customs, nor do the churches of God. What does that conclusion mean? In the conclusion, it's basically saying, if any man has an issue with this, they should know that they have no such custom. So, listen, what he was telling them, and the meaning of this, is that he was trying to tell them that what he's teaching them was from their, their culture. I'll repeat it again so everybody can understand. I'll read it from 14 into 16. It says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has a long hair, it dishonors him? But if a woman has a long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, that is, if anybody is saying that what I'm saying is not correct, it says, We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So, his first point of impact is saying that their tradition as a people is what he's teaching them. No more should be in, in contention with what he has just said because it's not their culture as a people for anyone to think otherwise from what he has said. Are you understanding what I'm saying? I'll take it again. Let me read it in KJV. Verse 15. Because your understanding of his conclusion is what will help you understand it. If a woman... If, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for a covering. If any man seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. So, pay attention to what he's saying. 
If any man seems to be contentious, contentious about what? Contentious about all the things he has stated. He says we have no such word. Custom. The Greek word for custom there is the word sunethia. That word means tradition. I get what I'm saying. Habitual tradition. That is, it's not consistent with our culture for anyone to be in contention with what I've just told you. Now, what this must lead you to do is to examine their culture. I you get what I'm saying. He first says, we have no such culture. Then later he says, neither do the churches of what? Of God. So it's important that you then understand their culture to understand what the Apostle Paul was doing in his instructions to them. Why did, he inst why did he instruct them that way? Amen. So what he was talking about was their tradition as a people, their culture. So how do you understand their culture? In their culture, one thing you would understand is that it is proper, or rather, it is vital for people to dress properly. Amen. It was what? Vital in their culture at the time for people to dress properly. So using head covering was a way First of all, from what we are reading and our understanding of that culture, head covering was a way to show authority over you. What is that authority? To show honor for your husband. Let's go back and read it. Now, culturally, we know it, even though you don't have time to study the culture. But even in the text, it is clear. It says, I want you to know the head of a man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Any man who prophesies having his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who is her head? Who is she dishonoring? So wearing a head covering is honor for who? Her husband. Why? Because it shows that she has an authority above her. That was their culture of showing that a person was married. Are you getting what I'm teaching you? It was their culture of showing that a person was married. So, what was the Apostle Paul doing in this place? He was using their culture to instruct them. Are you seeing something? He was using their culture to do what? To instruct them. He says, but every woman who prays and prophesies the head of God, does head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. What does it mean? Do you remember, even in African culture, when people lose their husbands, what do they do? They shave their head. And what that means is that the person has what? No authority over them. Are you seeing what I'm teaching you? It is cultural. It is cultural. So, when you see everything he says, and you see his conclusion, that if anyone argues with this, we don't have such customs, we don't have such culture, you begin to understand that using a head covering was to show honor to their husbands if they were married, but not just that, towards the end, he stopped talking about just one to the husband. He started talking about decency. He says, does nature not teach you that if a man has long hair, it is dishonor to him? If a woman has long hair, it is what? Glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So there were two reasons why they covered their heads culturally. Number one, to show that they had what? An authority figure over them that they were married and to show honor to their husbands and the second reason why they covered their head was for what 
decency. Are you getting it? It was for what? For decency. Today's equivalent of what we are reading now is to understand that a way that the person shows that she is married in her culture is not by a headgear, it's by what? A ring. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So what the Apostle Paul was doing was that he was using culture to teach honor for their husbands and decency. He was basically telling them that even in our custom, everybody already pretty much knows this. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Everyone already pretty much knows this. So, what you must now do when you see something like this, an understanding of the culture would help you interpret the message, then listen, the culture should be abandoned and the message should be held. Are you getting this? The culture should be what? Abandoned and the message should be held. So, back to the text. He brought you down to the context of marriage. So what he was basically saying is this. Woman, don't come to the Lord praying without reverence for your husband. Do you see that? That's why he said any woman who comes praying without covering her head, dishonors her head. Don't come praying without honoring your husband. Do you see that? Don't come praying without dressing in a decent manner. Are you with me? That's why a man prophesying without his head was not, without covering his head was not a problem. It was that for the woman, they were saying that you should have a married woman a symbol of authority. In that sense, judge amongst yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? You see, because he has taught them using culture, he now says, judge for yourself. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Judge for yourself. Is it proper? He now even uses nature to teach them. Moving further, does this make sense to everybody? As you go on studying, you see that by interpreting and by understanding the culture, you would be able to decode the message. You'll be able to see what is being, what he is trying to say. In the end, ultimately, the goal is not to pick the culture. The goal is to pick the message. And the culture should be abandoned. Let me ask you a question. If you cover your head today and you don't still honor your husband and you go to pray, would you have gotten the message? Because the goal is decency and what? Honoring your husband. So let me also say today, if you come not just to the house of God, but if you even go about with, in, with, with an indecent you know, appearance, would you have understood this message even though you covered your head? No. So two things there, understand the message. An understanding of the culture will help you interpret the message and then culture abandon message hell. The message is decency and honor for your husband. You see that? Are, are, are you getting that? And that's important. That's important. So there's equivalent, pretty simple. Ring, not just ring, an actual honor. In your heart, in that sense of what the word of God teaches us. And then decency. You see, from being able to interpret their culture, know what their culture entailed, we can see that the Apostle Paul was not necessarily instructing every woman everywhere to do the things that their culture requires. Mm -hmm. He was using the culture to teach them 
what to do. Are you seeing this? To teach them what to do. So, take a message from this. The goal now is for you to now see that I must conduct myself in a, in a decent manner, amen, and then for married women in a way that shows honor. I, I'll give you some examples, you know, of ways when you attend in court to usurp authority over your husband in situations when the Bible teaches about submission. Are you seeing what I'm saying? When you attend to usurp authority, listen, that's why we said it's in the context of what? Of marriage. That was what he was teaching. It was the same thing he did. He said, he says, wife, submit to your husband. He said that in Ephesians 5, and then everything he said after, we knew he was talking about marriage. Do you see that? So the context is marriage. And he used the culture to teach them. Is, is this clear to everybody? You see, the difference and not understanding the culture is why people have, you know, mixed it up. Because, funny enough, even if you thought that was not even the context, why then are you forcing women that are not married self to cover their head in church and say their prayers will not be answered? You see that people miss the point. And in today's culture, head covering is not even the way to show that you have authority figure over you. Amen. It's not. It's not. Let's go to another example. Another example. Let's do this. Um, Esther, you're going to open Romans 16, 16. Tamil, you're going to open 1 Corinthians 16, 20. Enna, you're going to open 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Chioma, you're going to open 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Falawa, you're going to open 1 Peter 5, 14. Princess Ubong, you're going to open Luke 7, 45, Princess. Ijeoma, you're going to open Matthew 26, 48 to 50. Zababela, you're going to open Luke 15, 20. Odulate Neola, you're going to open Acts 20, 36 to 37. Achi, you're going to open Genesis 27, 27. Sharon, you're going to open Genesis 31, 55. Han, you're going to open Exodus 4, 27. And you're going to open 1 Samuel 10, verse 1. All right. Are we set? All right. Let's start. Everybody, let's read from Romans 16, 16. All right. First person, can you read? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Churches of Christ greet you. Okay. First Corinthians 16, 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. Okay. Second Corinthians 13, 12. One another with a holy kiss. Okay, what's consistent? Kissing? Okay. First Peter 5, 14. And it says, Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. Alright. Luke 7, 45. You gave me no peace, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. So, what is the consistent thing in all the texts that I've read to you? Kiss yourselves with a holy kiss. Listen, this is principle of emphasis right here. Whatever the Bible is emphatic about, be emphatic about it. The Bible is emphatic about greeting yourselves with a kiss. I want to know why you guys don't kiss. Because the Bible is very emphatic about it. Greet yourself with a holy kiss. Amen. So why don't you kiss today? Okay. Luke 7, 45 says, Jesus even accused somebody. You gave me no kiss. <laughs> but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. Since the time I came in. So why are you not kissing today? 
Matthew 26, 48. Now near mm-hmm. the him, gave them a sign saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. 49. And forthward came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Do you know why it was not a problem for him to go and kiss Jesus? Because it was normal. He was going to use that kissing to be a sign to say that's the guy, but that was a greeting. So kissing. Luke 15 20. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So his father went and kissed his son. How many of you has your father's ever kissed you? <laughs> Acts 20 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Now, this is in the Gospels. I've seen them kiss in the era of Jesus and the disciples. Now, let's look at the Old Testament, Genesis 27 27. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See the smell of my son, is as the smell of the field which the Lord hath blessed. He kissed him. I'm saying so that you might so that you don't have any excuse. It was in the Old Testament, it was in the Gospels, <laughs> it was in the Epistles. Genesis 31:55. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. He kissed them. Exodus 4:27. So he went on the mountain of God and kissed him. So ultimately, my question is, why don't you kiss today? Or don't you follow the instructions of the Bible? The reason why you don't kiss today is because in their culture, giving a kiss was a form of affectionate greeting. Amen. And the lesson here, first of all, you do your cultural research to see that this was a way to show affectionate emotions, greetings. By kissing, that, that was their way. And so what to learn from there is not that from today now, every brother or sister you see on the road, you go and kiss. The lesson is to greet each other affectionately. However, with practices morally accepted in your culture. So, can I tell you something? You've read all these texts, but what you should now see is when you see another believer, greet them affectionately. Greet your brethren with what you should greet them affectionately so what's the equivalent of an affectionate greeting in our culture i think maybe a hug give a warm embrace but man to get a side embrace but let it be warm amen warm side embrace show emotion amen listen once church you know, start in your area. Make a habit of it. Greet it. Don't know. Hey, welcome to church. Just walk inside. You, you are just waiting for someone to welcome you. You cannot greet another person. Mm-mm. What to learn from this is to greet affectionately. Amen. To greet affection. I'm, I'm emphasizing it so you learn what to do. Greet affectionately. Greet like you're greeting a brother or a sister. Greet. Amen. I'm emphasizing it because it's important for you to learn. Great. Hug. One thing I, I would always like about this part of the world and the culture here is I would always know church people. 
with the way they grit, you know. Like I went to a bank recently. I was speaking with um, my bank advisor, and one thing led to another. We started speaking about God, church, the Orthodox Church, Protestants, you know, church and everything. So we spent almost one and a half hours talking about scriptures and God and how to find truth and everything. And when I was leaving, you know, he he said, "How oh, have a blessed day. God bless you, brother." You know, say, hey, how's the weather? Are you ready for the word of God today? You know, that kind of, like, warm greeting that shows that I can relate to you on a deeper level, you know? Do you understand what I'm saying? I can relate to you on a deeper level. I don't think it should just be a cultural thing. I think it should be a believer thing. Amen. I think it should be a believer thing that when I see another believer, we can relate on a deeper level. So I'll greet you warmly. Uh, let me just use some more. You know, every time I have, I have to use to exhort you. Call people, even people you've not called before. Call your pastor. Say, hello, pastor. How are you doing today, sir? Hope your day is fine. Even not just me. I'm saying to everybody, greet people warmly. Hi, Abiola. I saw that you posted something recently. Did you do this? Did you do that? You know, congratulations. Learn to genuinely congratulate people. Be intentional. That's how to give a one. That's the lesson to learn from here. Amen. It's not about kiss. It's about learning and trying, putting the culture down, but holding the message. What is the message? Greet your brethren emotionally, affectionately, affectionately. Even me, I can. That's why I try to put intentional things. You know, sometimes just say some things that like give a word of prophecy for you. You know what I'm saying? You know, just say something nice about the person. So let's be a lot more intentional. Let's let's greet people affection. When you call people too, don't just say, okay, is that all? Calm down. Make at least how are you? How is your family? Hope everything is going well. I was watching Trevor Noah yesterday. He said that he said mobile phone is turning us to Neanderthals. So he's saying mobile phones are turning us because what you say in three words, everybody, emoji, the was a sticker. And respond to my text message. <laughs> Put sticker. Let's have human conversations. Hello. How was your day? Amen. What about you? Learn to greet people. Learn to be affectionate towards other believers. Amen. Alright, let's take one more example. Another example is the phrase, son or sons of God. In today's culture, what does son, if you say someone is someone's son, if you say he's his son, you're talking about his male child, right? His biological male offspring. But when you look at the scriptures, if you look at Job chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Are you seeing that? So the word sons of God here is the Hebrew word Bene Elohim, B E N E, Bene Elohim. In Job 38 verse 7, the Bible says, When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. So what the sons of God mean? In this context, sons of God is used to refer to beings, supernatural beings created by God. The word Bene Elohim is used to refer to them. In Psalms 89 verse 6, 
The Bible says, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who amongst the sons of the Almighty can be likened to the Lord? In this context, he's not talking about humans. Are, are you seeing what I'm saying? I'll show you a good way to understand it. In 1 Kings 20, 35, the Bible says, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. When he says sons of the prophets there, he was not talking about biological sons of the prophets. Amen. He was talking about people who worked with the prophets. Are you seeing what I'm saying? People who worked with the prophets. So sons of prophets, the term used to refer to people who worked with the prophets, not biological prophets. If you see 2 Kings 2 to 3. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? Do you see that? Your master. So the sons were not his biological sons. They were his students, the people he was training. Do you see that? So that's very important for you to watch, for you to see. So the phrase is used differently based on the audience. One way we've seen it, so what we're going to do is let's do a quick, you know, understanding of the phrase. Bene Elohim. Alright? Are you all with me? I look for all the places that sons of God was used in the Bible. Genesis chapter 6 verse 2. Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 is the first one. The Bible says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and took wives for themselves of all whom they choose. So, listen. When you read this text, how many of you have read this text before? Sons of God took daughters of men. There's a temptation to think that who are the sons of God? Are these other men or who are the sons of God? How are we going to understand it? We're going to understand it based on the context of you. So in this culture, who are the people that are called sons of God? In this context, who are the people that are called sons of God? Let's look at the whole of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. It says they were giants on the earth those days and afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Job 1.6 is another place you see sons of God. It probably might not still be clear in Genesis, but if you go to Job, it says now there was a day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So now, Satan is in a way identified as what? Sons of God. But it was surprising that he came. I get what I'm saying. So, from this context, who are sons of God? Supernatural creations of God. Job 38.7 When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. The context here is what again? Supernatural beings created by who? By God. Now, let's look at the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's different. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9, the Bible says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Question, is these sons of God referring to supernatural beings created by God? No. How do we now know who the sons of God are in this context? Luke chapter 20 verse 34. The Bible says, Jesus answered to them and said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given to marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God. 
being sons of the resurrection? Are sons of God supernatural beings here? No. Because in the context of this, they asked him a question that if a woman marries three husbands or seven husbands before she dies, when she dies, who is her true husband? Then Jesus answered and said, The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage, but those who are, count, who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given to marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God. Who is he talking about? He says, People that have died, but then he says, No, can they die anymore? For they are equal to angels and are sons of God. Now, who are sons of God? He says, Being sons of the resurrection. Meaning, sons of God are sons of the resurrection. Amen. Who are the people that are sons of the resurrection? People who believe in Christ. Believers. So, we are defining sons of God in the context of the New Testament now. This is a different sonship. Sons of the resurrection. Romans 8.14 For as many who are led by the Spirit of God, they are what? Sons of God. Who are those led by the Spirit of God? Believers, people who have been led from the old man to the new man in salvation. It says, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit bears with us the spirit that we are children of God, and we can children and heirs and heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, each so be that we suffer with him that we will be glorified together. You see, sons of resurrection, because if Jesus was the first begotten from the dead, and we are heirs with Christ, it means that we will be risen with Christ in the end and we will be sons of resurrection. Are you seeing what I'm teaching you? Romans 8, 19 For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. You see, Galatians 3, 26 For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So, the usage or application of the word is subject to the context of study. In Old Testament context, who are sons of God then? Supernatural beings. Do you see that? So that text about sons of God meeting sons, daughters of men, if, if you're going to follow proper interpretation, cannot be talking about ordinary humans. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Today is not the day to explain it, but I'm just telling you how we'll come to a conclusion. Because the context of the usage of sons of God in the Old Testament are supernatural beings created by God. But the context of sons of God in the New Testament are sons of the resurrection. Do you see that? So Context remains your most reliable way to understand what is being said. And considering the cultural context is important, and knowing that this barrier exists, it's important that you are able to navigate through, to discover the culture, to be able to know how to get the message. Amen. Ultimately, when you are approaching the Bible, you must realize and remember that there is a barrier called the cultural barrier, the historical barrier, and you want to be able to study the cultural context so that you are not misled as you study the Bible. Have you been blessed this evening? Yes, sir. Yes, sir.